Good evening. All right. I, um, I'm trying to do two things at once. Now I've got it right. All right. <clears throat> Good evening. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, tonight's show is uh, a little bit different. Um, not that much different, though. Um, I was listening to a song earlier. Um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. It was, by, it was from Tears for Fears. And um, that came out in 1985. I mean, I was young, young dude back when that came out. And I didn't think about it. It was during the middle of the Cold War, um, which is uh, more than a lot of you um, have experienced or will uh, remember. But this is when, um, just let me read you a passage on it. It was during that time that the Cold War between the United States and Russia was at one of its peaks that this song was written. Thus, Many of the cryptic lyrics in it refer to the tense situation. However, what the track is about in general is the lust for power and control and the destructive consequences which manifest as a result. Thus, it is also believed that Everybody Wants to Rule the World contains references to George Orwell's classic book, 1984. It's important to men mention that 1984 is not only about war, but it's also about fictional governments all-encompassing desire to control the masses. Um, this is, uh, it, it's just wild how fitting it is now. And I've been noticing that with a um, uh, lot of songs recently um, that I run past, uh, you know, that came out a long time ago, like Guns N' Roses, Civil War, uh, just a prime example right there. And, you know, um, you can go back to, uh, Neil Young, I mean, goodness, the, the list goes on and on. Um, you know, the song that Neil Young sang, sang about Kent State, um, you know, the Ford Dead in Ohio, it's it's all, it's like a full circle thing. So the question would be, in my opinion, is why are we regressing? I mean, we, we should be progressing and we're not. The last six years have been a disaster and Without getting into politics uh, tonight, I'll just say I think we know why. I mean, it, it's been a chaotic bunch of children in charge, and um, uh, that's been uh, telltale signs is it's a mess. And, um, you know, the casting blame game and everything else is, is great for all the people that don't study, and it becomes buzzwords, and it becomes just a big waste of time. Um and um, I just wanted to go into the first verse on this song. And it says, you know, welcome to your life. There's no turning back. Even while we sleep, we will find you. Acting on our best behavior, turn your backs on Mother Nature. To everybody wants to rule the world. Okay. And then skip down a little bit. And this is the line that caught me the most, really, is it says, most of freedom, help me make the most of freedom and of pleasure. Make, I can't say. Help me make the most of freedom and of pleasure. Nothing ever lasts forever. Everybody wants to rule the world, and um, uh, that's the situation we're in. It's um, you know, it's become lawless. It's become a more racist and bigoted and um, hatred-filled nation, um, which personally is deplorable to me. I know, and I share this story a lot that when. I was a little kid. Um, I mean, I'm talking like young, like four years old or so. Um, yeah, because I started kindergarten at four. Uh, 
one of those mistakes people make in life. But um, my mom taught us from an early age, my sister and I, that um, what if you have all these babies in a, um, you know, I, she used to call it an infirmary, which was a name for it. And let's just say in the after delivery room where all the babies are together. Um, and let's say you have a black baby, a Chinese baby, an Indian baby, and a white baby, and the list goes on. Do you think those babies are going to hate each other? And the answer would be no, they wouldn't. Um, so what we get at with that is hatred is absolutely taught. It's not um, something that just comes natural, and, and it's never going to be. Sadly, though, now we've gotten to a point where we've got you know, things like critical race theory and uh, just absolute nonsense going on. And how do we get control of it is the bigger question that I think needs the answer. And um, what's the answer? Um, for me, it's Bob Marley a long time ago spoke of one love. Um, and it's so truthful. I think that was in the late 70s, maybe early 80s. I can't remember exactly when Bob Marley died. Um, it's just amazing that we've gotten so distanced from that when we came such a long way only to go backwards, backwards, backwards. And it's um, it's really, to me, bothersome. Um, and with all that said, uh, I'm going to change the page tonight and go back into um, sobriety for a bit. Um, you know, for those of you that are new, I know I'm on Instagram tonight, too. Um, I died from drinking myself to death, um, literally in 2021. And uh, I was at end stage liver failure, um, not eligible for a transplant because um, uh, I didn't have six months clean. I mean, I went to the hospital with liver failure. I was so jaundiced. Um, I, I made Kermit the Frog look pale. And um. Uh, you know, and going through that, I was somebody who was who was not grateful, who was playing the steps, just just constantly the misery, man, and the manipulation and um, the stupidity of it all. And um, it used to be like I, I will joke once in a while. I blame everything that ever caused me to start drinking on my sister. Um, because in, in my times, I'm in my mid forties and going through so many rehabs and, uh, things over the years, it was, um, uh, a sad state of affairs, but I knew how to work the rehabs. I knew how to play them. And, um, you know, I can remember I brought up this story a couple of weeks ago. One of the first times I was in rehab in the early two thousands, um, I was so scared of the stigma of alcohol, alcoholic, being called an alcoholic. I still hate the word. I think it's a scarlet letter that uh, they put on your chest for those of you that know the book. And, um, you know, so I, I manipulated my way into becoming a painkiller addict. Um, and that was just because shortly before that, I was in a car accident. They did prescribe me Percocets. Back then, it was um, you could get... Uh, Percocet 10 was the highest and you would get a prescription of like 90, but you didn't have all the, um, it wasn't all Casper and stuff. So you could go around to every different hospital in one day. And, um, you know, all I had to do is go in and get an x-ray and, you know, they'd see that hairline fracture in my back, which, um, 
you know, it was really, it, it was rough for a short amount of time. Um, but then I did somewhat get hooked on painkillers, but I was also abusing the painkillers with alcohol, which, um, uh, you know, the way it went is we would have half a pint of cheap vodka and always have it in our coat pockets. I was doing real estate at the time. And, um, you know, whenever I'd start coming down from the painkillers, take a shot of alcohol, I was working 18 hours a day and I mean, just killing it. I was doing really well. And um, so, but that's not getting us to the manipulation. I'm just explaining my history with um, any kind of painkillers. Well, that was it. But I was so much against being called an alcoholic because it wasn't a big deal back then. The painkillers and the uh, Percocets, lower tabs, uh, Vicodin, I think, and um, a couple other things. It just wasn't a big deal. I mean, an endless supply was as easy to get as um, Advil is now today. And, um, you know, so I, I played that role, learned the character. Um, so you know, I got out of there and I was not labeled an alcoholic at the time um, because I can remember flat out telling them you know, that I probably wouldn't, um, uh, I probably wouldn't drink if it wasn't to make the painkillers better, you know, or something. I don't know. It was just, you manipulate, you manipulate. And um, uh, how I've gotten past that is an important message more than anything is when I was sent home to die, which I was, and again, for the newer people, when I was sent home to die um, with hospice, you know, uh, Nurse Bess said I fired hospice, but um, a lot of people have heard this many times, but it's important. I went home knowing, knowing, fully knowing I was going to die. I couldn't walk. I had to be carried in the house. I was laid up in a bed. Um, and, um, you know, I was supposed to have maybe three months, I think is what it was. Um, uh, I'm so cloudy on those days. But uh, during those, uh, the tail end of the three months, I had another doctor's appointment. And I went in and they scanned my liver. I'm expecting the worst news, you know, and um, miraculously my liver's healing. So I, I'm going to explain this and take a step back real quick is, what had truthfully happened is I was in bed one day and I was so frustrated because I couldn't go to the fridge and get an orange juice. And, um, you know, I was there by myself. Cause like I said, I didn't have hospice. I didn't have in home health care. And, um, you know, it, it was just me basically just in a pitiful uh, shape and condition. And, um, it was, uh, so utterly, uh, there was no quality of life. I mean, um, I can, all I can say is I, I didn't feel sorry for myself, but I was absolutely still in misery. So uh, I'm not one of those that was, um, this is the first time in my life I never had a pity party. I don't know how this stuff rolled on to me, but I was like, you know, just, I did this to myself and I was fully admitting that and um, didn't get it confused at all. So you know, I, I remember that day laying in bed and I thought I could will myself to walk. So I tried to edge myself off the bed and stand up because I was getting to the point where I could actually stand up once in a while and, you know, I have to sit back down. Um, and uh, I think I could stand for like maybe 10 seconds at a time or something before my legs would give out. So I was like, you know what, if I take this, there was a walker by the bed. If I take that, I can do it. So I didn't even get to grab the walker before I hit the ground and I'm laying on the ground and 
you know, I've never experienced anything like this. I had rheumatic fever when I was um, eight years old, and I, I do remember not being able to walk and stuff then, but I, you know, I always had my parents, you know, my dad would carry me around or whatnot. So um, here I am, just pitiful as can be, hit the floor, and, um, you know, I just started praying, but not not praying for myself. But, you know, in the standard prayer, I've said this before, but it was, um, Lord, please forgive me for the sins I've committed. I know I committed them in my own free will, and I beg and pray for you to come in my heart and guide me in the right direction. So um, with that said, uh, that prayer, which, would, you know, I was going to end it real quick like that, turned into um, two and a half hours of uh, going backwards. I mean, like, literally, forgive me for this, forgive me for that, forgive me for this, forgive me for that. And it just kept going. And I've got big tears rolling out of my eyes. And um, somehow that day, I woke up. Um, I, I, I know I pulled myself back on the bed. It took me like an hour. Um, it, it was ridiculous. I mean, I weighed 115 pounds and right now I weigh 180. Um, and, um, you know, I just had no strength, nothing, nothing in me was good to go. And, um, but so now we go back to going to that doctor's appointment to have the liver scan. Well, I'm expecting the worst news, of course. I mean, you know, I've already outlived, uh, the many times I was told I was going to be dead. And, uh, you know, the first one was like three days to a week. Um, so, you know, all, all that was going on and it kept going. And, um, you know, looking into it with the prayer and, you know, just forgiveness and not pity party. There was no more manipulation. I wasn't doing any of that. I didn't feel sorry for myself. I was trying to protect others from uh, grieving my stupidity. I was really tired about, you know, just tell the truth about, you know, what happened to me. I don't want to be one of those, you know, things on Facebook where, um, um, Sorry, my phone was beeping. One of those things on Facebook where everybody's like, what happened to him? Because it's the first thing we think of when somebody passes away and we hear about it and they're, you know, uh, younger and, you know, okay, what happened to him? Why, why are they gone? And um, most of the time, most people run away from it. I don't know if it's family embarrassment or they think they're protecting your name or I've heard don't speak ill of the dead. And um, I, I don't think it would ever be speaking ill of me if I would have kept up that path and that momentum of, um, faithlessness and, um, uh, I mean, thinking back on it, it, trust me, it's hard sometimes, but, uh, so the liver scans come back that day. Um, cause it was like an immediate thing because nobody's understand why I'm struggling on this long. It's still uh, pretty cognitive. Um, and uh, they come back and, you know, I remember my doctor, she was like, um, I don't know how to explain this. Okay, so I'm still thinking the worst. And um, she says, but you're healing. And then, of course, she uh, <laughs> gave me the uh, disclaimer that that may not be, uh, it may be a fluke thing. Um, so, but going through that, and all this goes on and all this goes on. And over the next year, I mean, I build back up to what I am now. I don't have health problems. I'm not I'm not in trouble. I'm not in danger. I'm not uh, losing my life anymore. I'm living my life for the first time that I've ever been able to live a life. It was 
in 26 years a broken record here, but I couldn't put together one single year of a cognitive uh, cognitive progressive um, life. I mean, um, it's, it's it's so wild to think about now. Like, I don't remember the four months before I was in the hospital really at all. Um, and, you know, so why am I here? That's, that's the biggest question. What, what, what happened? Um, I do believe it was that day that, you know, that all I saw was forgiveness. And I promise you, I did not do pity party to God. I didn't start bargaining for my life. I didn't go through the stages of death and dying. Um, I think I'd already been there and I, I was pretty much accepting of that I knew what I had done to myself and I was going to pay the ultimate price for it. And um, so that's that's not what's happened over the year to condense this real quick. It kept getting uh, my results kept getting better and better and better and better. And they, you know, were telling me repeatedly this this is there's no medical explanation for what happened to you. And I was like, okay. And um, I remember the more I started getting better, the more, you know, I was thinking about it. And I was like, you know, hey, what did I do to deserve this? What, what, what did I do to find any kind of, um, uh, uh, reason to, um, <clears throat> live because in looking at it, I, I think in the last four months um, before I did factually die, I had to be resuscitated twice. And, um, you know, I, I think I was on a suicide mission, but so selfish and uh, stuck into a pity party that I was more addicted to not just the alcohol, but the feeling sorry for me and the blame game. And it's always somebody else's fault. It was never my fault. Not, not once, not, not during this time period. And, um, you know, I'd always find reasons to say, you know, I'm not this and that. Now, what I had, and now, uh, for those of you that don't know is, um, going through to, um, finish a master's degree in psychology with a substance, um, addiction concentration um and uh, what i say is alcohol use disorder is what i was suffering from i don't believe in the 12 uh steps as a solution whatsoever and um uh, for uh, everybody's knowledge um real quick is uh neither did the co-founder bill w um so and we go from there and get me back on track because I can rabbit hole and I can do it a lot. Um, so, and, and going back through all of this, um, you know, I, I completely realized for whatever dumb reason, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid to die, but I was afraid of not knowing God. You know, it, it was truly a heartache and the loss of God. And, um, you know, and the the pity party and, um, you know, the attention whoring for um, everything and um, what a mistake it made. Um, so when it comes down to it, in that day when I was laying on the floor, I mean, I felt something like a weight come off of me, you know, maybe like clearing my conscience or whatnot. But um, so now here I am a, a good period of time later and um uh, it's shocking 
um, to go back and jump into my shoes from, let's say, two years ago and um, be like, I'm the guy who's sober and who's sitting here preaching of what saved me. And that was salvation, first and foremost. And that was faith. I found faith again. And faith is an amazing, amazing drug. And um, uh, the euphoric feeling I get from faith is I don't have the anxiety I used to have. I don't pity party the way I used to. You don't have to lie, um, you know, as you do. And I don't know anybody with alcohol use disorder that's fully uh, immersed in the issue um, who isn't just constantly lying because you're lying to yourself. Why are you going to tell anybody else the truth after that? It, it would make no sense. So um, we go on from there. And, you know, uh, I've heard this twice in the last couple of weeks that um, I don't drink because I can't. That's that's so ignorant. It's ridiculous. It's it's so wrong. I, I, I can drink if I want to. Trust me, I can drink if I want to. It's I, I don't want to. Um, that's all it boils down to. I can drink. I've been even told uh, by one of the um, doctors, which I think it was a nurse practitioner, um, who told me that, yeah, I could drink in moderation, but not like every day and not like the stuff I was doing. And I was like, huh, no, man, I can't drink. I suck at drinking. I'm terrible at drinking. I fail at drinking. I fail over and over and over again. And I've cost myself so much time that I can't buy back that, you know, what that life that I had, the party life and, um, you know, the crazy stories I can still go over time and time again. And, um, and now I look back at them and I, it, some of it's so cringeworthy. Um, you know, I have to ask for forgiveness again, pretty much. But what healed me is uh, what most will say now is, you know, let's get past the medical, uh, no explanation for anything medically. And I've seen specialists that have no explanation. So one of the last appointments I had, um, which was right about six months ago, I told them, doctor, they're like, you know, we just can't explain this. We don't know what happened. And I was like, you know, I just pointed up at the sky and, um, you know, they were like, okay, what's that supposed to mean? Uh, I said, well, I guess that means you're fired because I can explain it. And I was primarily joking with them, but because um, I am kind of a uh, smart aleck. Um, yeah, I, basically a lot of the time. Um, so, but that's, that's the truth. There is no, there's no scientific explanation um, uh, and there's nothing else to it. So what happened is I do believe in the faith, the uh, newly gained faith, the salvation that was given to me because I should not be here. I pulled up my medical records. I've shared them on Facebook. There's still people that, you know, question the validity of it. And honestly, just shut up. Um, it's this is uh, it's not Goodlow's miracle by any means. It would be God's miracle. Now, that brings me to present day again, back to everybody wants to rule the world. I'm what you call outspoken. I piss people off daily. And um, it's because I don't I don't I don't like the whole sheep mentality and that stuff that keeps people trapped into 
what they call addiction. It, you will find out through any of these programs that now, you know, most of it's based off the AA module. And so when you go through there, it doesn't matter what kind of recovery you go to. If you go to faith-based, um, like I did, which by the way, that did not help me. That was, uh, that literally depleted as many brain cells as, um, um, yeah, as alcohol was doing. So, I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. it. It's because of the method of the faith-based. It's not the fact that it was faith-based because I don't think it was. It was profit-based. And, um, you know, that's it, it, you can't fault these recovery centers for, you know, being profit organizations. You know, I mean, it, it, it is what it is right there. And that's okay. But my faith is what saved me. I don't do meetings. I don't run from things. Um, I face triggered. I went to a bar a few weeks back with a friend of mine and you know what? It did not bother me in the least bit. And is that because I'm relying on me or because I'm relying on God to give me the strength to move forward? And it's always been God to give me the strength to move forward. I realized because um, considered not so nice a lot of times that, you know, matter of fact, I, I think everybody's uh, most common phrase I hear is asshole. Um, because I, I'm not, there is no fear of going against the grain. Look, I, I've died from this crap. I, I get it. I've been there. I see it. I know who that person was as compared to uh, who I am now. This is, um, it, it's a life-changing decision. And I applaud the people who can go out and have a few drinks and be cool. You know, and uh, why should I be mad about people doing that? Why should I believe in that, uh, you know, I, I can't have some friends that I've been friends with for 30 some years. Why well, can't I hang out with them? Because I don't drink. I don't use it as I can't drink. And that's that's important to acknowledge in my life is it's not that I can't. It's that I don't want to and I won't. Because um, seriously, man, I, I'm just terrible at it. I'm a failure. I'm irrational. Um, uh, I'll put it this way. And when I went to the hospital, I blew, I didn't blow from my blood test. It was a 0.508. That's two points above dead. I say that a lot. So again, I can be a broker and record, but I'm on a new string tonight too, as well as this one. And um, <clears throat> uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's crazy. That's two points above dead. I mean, I shouldn't have been alive at that point. And you have to think I was already going through liver failure so uh, badly that I had so much ammonia on my head that it was like an LSD trip, except not an LSD trip. It was basically what's happening. And that's the kind of death that I was looking at is a, um, you know, uh, alcohol related dementia is, uh, I think is how it's best explained. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, a, just a wild time. And, uh, yeah, so that's my thing. And, you know, everybody likes to spread hope. Everybody wants to tell you, um, you know, how to get sober. This program, you can't do it without AA. You can't do it without NA. You can't do it without this. You've got these pages and everybody in the world telling you how to get sober. Um, I'm not doing that. I'm telling you how I got sober and how it's kept me sober and how after 26 years of heavy, heavy drinking, 
I didn't take it lightweight. Now, I'm not one of those that goes to have a um, pissing contest in a uh, group therapy session. Um, I was drinking a 1.75 of Tito's vodka a day. And, um, you know, that that's insane. I would wake up uh, already starting to get the shakes, you know, have to take a drink, puke that drink up. This was this was a process at this point. And, um, you know, then finally be able to get down another drink. And I would sit there and I would hold up the bottle like this by its handle and count to 10 when I took drinks. Because uh, <laughs> this is this is me to a T. Why, why did I do that? Because I can't stand the taste of alcohol. I've never liked the taste of alcohol. I'm not somebody who goes out to dinner and be like, oh, this wine will pair great with this. No, I don't think anything tastes good with alcohol. But again, that's just me. I'm a picky eater too, I suppose. But faith is what drove this whole thing. And also facing it. You've got to face yourself. You've got to understand what you've done to yourself. What got you there? What 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 is blaming? You know, um, a big issue we all have. And I should be the exact one saying, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. I had that alcoholic gene that carried over from my dad's side of the family because his father died of drinking. My parents never drank. I say this every time. It's true. Um, no, there is no identifiable alcoholic gene. You can be predisposed to um, something such as a manic depression, uh, which I have, and you mix that manic depression with uh, childhood trauma, which I have, and that's PTSD. And self-medicating is a one-way road to destruction, destruction, physical destruction, uh, mental destruction, and physical, not fiscal, physical destruction uh it, it takes your mind body and soul when you get into the point of your alcohol use disorder is the one that's in control because you're not and um that, that is something similar you'll hear in the rooms but also keep in mind the reason i push this sometimes is to let people know and understand that look aa does help so it's a help you can go to AA and you can stay in that program and you can stay in that program and you're going to stay in that program for life. And that's true. And I'm not speaking of somebody who's just some idiot and got anger towards AA. I mean, I study this stuff every day. I'm working on another uh, clinical study tonight. I think tonight's is. Yeah, tonight's is video game addiction, which was not considered an addiction until 1995. But I'll talk about that later on. Um, so in getting there e each and every day, um, uh, when I think about this stuff, when I think about it, the reason I'm in school, the reason I'm doing this now, I don't have to do this, but I'm doing this because I have a desire to assist God in helping somebody else not go through what I went through because it was stupid and it was absolutely just, I needed my mind changed and God finally changed my mind. Not somebody in a room, uh, not some group therapy, not a bunch of uh, people on social media. And man, when I read some stats this week about how many of those people are actually fake and or dead, um, it, it, it's uncanny that, uh, you know, it's just a good way for people to get clicks and make money. Um, I don't want any 
money. Um, it, that's not what I'm in it for. I, I didn't sit there and literally die and have to face, you know, I'm not supposed to be here right now. No more birthdays, no more Christmases. I knew all this stuff. So now that I'm here, I turn it around with and through and the promises I made to God as I came back to. And those are what I do. And those are what I fulfill. And those are what keeps me going and doing what I do. I'm not doing it for attention. I'm not doing it to try and put myself up anywhere because man, I'm telling you the way I lived is cool as it looked on the outside at times. It's absolutely horror. And looking back on it, I really do, as I said, get chills sometimes when I think about it because it was an awful experience and existence. So, my theory, and as a soon-to-be psychologist, um, licensed, that is, um, is that if we start out, the one way we needed to do, and something I've been looking into is motivational interviewing, and um, I don't know if any of you all know what this is. Um, a lot of people do that are into, that are in counseling or so on. But this should be your first step as a counselor. So, and I think about this because I can put myself in those shoes. What what worked for me? What didn't work for me? What was I too smart for? What was I too stupid to get? So I put it all in, you know, come up with my theories, bounce them off, look at other studies and keep going. I mean, this is study alone is a full time job for me. And there's at least at least a eight to 10 to 15 hours a day. Sometimes I work on this stuff and that'll get me into self-care later, but not right now. All right. So when you're doing a motivational interviewing, I look at this as something we can ask ourselves as well, because it really can be something that we should ask ourselves. All right. So when you're working on uh, motivational in interviewing here, you first, you need to identify a goal. Okay. Um, when using motivational <laughs> motivational interviewing, the counselor first helps clients determine what their goals are for treatment. So if 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 you feel like you need treatment, so what is the end game? What, why are you going to treatment? What makes you want to go to treatment? What's going on? So predetermined before you get in there, because this type of interviewing isn't about the accusation type interviewing that a lot of us are used to. You know, okay, you're an alcoholic. What are you going to do about it? No, you don't do that at all. You don't use those words. And um, so ask yourself, ask yourself tonight, you know, maybe I think I have a problem. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So if I go to counseling, what do I want out of counseling? It's not what the doctor wants or what the program tells or what the recovery centers guaranteed success is. That's all of them. Somehow we, you know, help save lives one day at a time. And um, once you have that inside you, you know, let it let it fester. You know, do you have a problem? Can uh, let's let's just talk straight alcohol. All right, I don't want to drink as much as I do. Okay, so that's my goal at first. I don't need a counselor for that. I don't. I don't need to talk to somebody about it. That's that's too embarrassing. That's stigma. So um. Go from there and see how cutting down works. If it works, try.
try taking a uh, abstinence from it for a while, you know, a fast, a fast. And, um, okay, so let's say that doesn't work. Then you're like, okay, maybe there's something more going on here. Maybe, you know, this is my depression. For me, I was always self-medicating, which makes it worse. I mean, there's no if ands, or buts about that. It makes it worse, <laughs> phenomenally worse. And, um, okay, so we'll keep going there. And uh, so you've come to the conclusion that, you know, you really, it's kind of irresistible. Like if you're having a bad day, mine was like, um, you know, I can tell you, I'll joke around and say stuff like, you know, one time when I was uh, seven years old, my sister locked me out of the house. That's why I started drinking. But once you get into the actual use disorder of it, you really do start finding, finding ways that it's not your fault because you're trying to rationalize why you're, why you're doing this. And um, unlike many, my unpopular belief is it's not a disease, it's a symptom of the larger issue, which is going to be a disease, whether it be a PTSD, which is progressive, depression, bipolar 2, bipolar 1, progressive bipolar 1, especially with the mania when it comes to use disorders. And, you know, you keep going, but this is a failure we've had where we sit there and say, Okay, it's I'm an alcoholic. That's a disease. I've got a disease. I can't help it. Yes, you can. You can. With any disease, you know, when I had skin cancer once upon a time, did I want to sit here for the rest of my life and say I'm in recovery or I'm recovered? You know, when I had that surgery, I had, I think it was a total of 23 spots removed from my back and that was from abusing a tanning bed so there is cause and effect so um i go back on that and haven't thought about it and i honestly don't let it cross my mind too much that was around 2005 or so at the time i used that as an excuse to drink but i used everything as an excuse to drink you know literally um damn it i dropped the uh, grape juice on my pants well time for a drink and, um, you know, that it's five o'clock somewhere thing is really true, except for me, you know, it ended up being, it's like 7 a.m. somewhere, um, you know, par for the course. So we keep going here and eventually uh, you get into your counselor and they're like, okay, we're going to, why don't we do this process of motivational interviewing? So, um, so Okay, makes more sense the way I'm going to put it. If you clarify your ambivalence about change, okay, like um, what 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 do you want to change? Um, I don't want to go out every night for drinks, you know. Um, so set some boundaries on yourself. I, I know um, with me, uh, I, I've set many other coping skills. Like if I'm having a bad day or something, I'm learning how to play the guitar again and um i also use things like xbox which um if anybody has any questions about that type of therapy it is legitimate and um you know it, it's something that works for me it's a stress reliever and it's just you know putting yourself in a different place there's also when it comes to self-care you know there's there's to each their own on that one i mean it could be playing tennis um uh 
walking around the block, taking a long bath. I do that a lot of times and meditate, meditate, meditate's a great, a great idea in my world. So after that step, we're going to get into eliciting um, change talk. Okay. And I've pretty much already gone there, but what is it you want to change? What is it you want to do? So you're constantly, we're building you up to, and you're building yourself up to motivate yourself. This is why I want to do it. I, I'm sick of everybody saying I smell like booze. I'm, I'm sick of being embarrassed to, you know, talk to a cashier in a store, which I was bad about. And I, I don't know if I've said this before or not, but I was actually happy when we had to start wearing masks for COVID because I put it, I'm not kidding. I put a downing sheet in that mask and um, I'd be like, okay, this is a, uh, yeah, I'm just thinking about it. Now they don't know. I didn't pay attention to the fact that I, you know, I'm like this and um, so on, but uh, it is what it is. All right. So next on my list here, um, the one thing uh, that especially you're going to get, is um positive feedback from the therapist and support um you know it a lot of times support is so important you know it, it doesn't matter even if we're you know like in our 40s like me um you know positive reinforcement still still works um you know, I, I could still, my mom's been dead uh, 27 years now and I could still use her. I mean, seriously, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine because I don't have that, but I've got friends and family and people who are there for me. I've got my sister and I had a dead relationship is her picking up my pieces for the last 20 years. And um, now I've got a great relationship with her. She's very important to me. She's always been an important person to me. But before, I didn't know how to quite show it. She doesn't. Um, she's just a good sister. I mean, that's all there is to it. Um, she's good at calling me on nonsense. And she's good at being there to uh, listen. So, um now, here, when you're doing a motivation, motivational, why am I having so much trouble with that? When you're doing a motivational interview, um, here's some steps to get started, okay? If it takes me there. Okay. Number one is open-ended questions instead of yes or no questions. Um, I, I do find that very important. You know, like, you can sit there and ask somebody, all right. Do you think you're drinking too much? No. Um, it, it's better to build a conversation. Um, so an example here, it says, um, uh, what's been going on with you since we last met? And I'm sure some of you that have been to counseling have heard that. Um, so and it does always work. And, it, you know, the goal there is to elicit your thoughts on you know what's been going on so that'll automatically make you hit that little rewind button to the past week or month or whatever it is and you know it's a good process man like i don't i don't like bullshit i'm sure we've all been to counselors that's my one customer um i'm sure we've all been to counselors that you know we don't like them um I, i'm strong about that if you don't like your counselor if you don't like the person you're working with it's walk on um, because really you're just wasting your time 
And, you know, especially if it's court ordered or something like that, man, make sure you get somebody that you can actually talk to. It doesn't matter if you're uh, bitching about the process of the court and what's going on with you. But, you know, it is what it is. All right. So uh, practicing reflective listening too. like um, this is hard because our friends and family tend to not do this too much. Um, so if somebody says something like, uh, here's a good one. Um, I wish I didn't eat so much fast food. That's the patient. And then um, as a counselor, you would say, or a doctor, you would say, um, so you eat fast food fairly often because then you're going backwards and getting into it. Of Okay. If this person says they eat fast food too much, what does that mean? Is that once a week, twice a week, three times a week, seven days a week? Um, we just don't know. So we'll go from there. But um, with all that said, I'm quickly running out of time. And um, uh, my theories on sobriety, and I'm always open to talk to anybody that needs to talk about it, is to just uh, don't BS the whole thing. And, um, you know, you don't have to be um, faith-based as I am. You don't. Um, uh, I think that runs people away. I'm sure you're not going to beat a Bible over anybody's head. I'm telling you what happened with me and to me and what I went through. And uh, that's pretty, pretty much cut and dry, man. I mean, um, I don't know how else to put it um, when it comes to that. So um, it's, 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 my belief, my faith is um, very strong. And from what I've seen firsthand and um, not second guess, not somebody telling me what to see or telling me what to do or, you know, nobody was standing around telling me I better get right with God and, uh, you know, I better do as they say, not as I do. And, you know, just so on like that. Um, I was not scared to die. And I can't say that enough as I was not scared. I was so fed up with living that I was not scared. So God's gift to me became a struggle and a lot more before it became the gift than it is today that I'm in a position where I can start offering assistance to others who are going through it and not be judgmental and not sit there and tell you these horror stories and have contests about it because I've been through all that. And I honestly hated it and it kept me. It helped keep me drunk. Some people can truly get addicted to being an addict. And that is absolute truth. No matter who twists that on you, it's true. And um, and this is probably stuff that's going to get me sued one day, but that's true too. All right. So let me do a quick commercial. Um, well, no, I can't. Um, I don't have it set up on both forms separately. Never mind. Um, this is, I, I do this um, live through Endure Entertainment, which you can find on Facebook. Um, YouTube, and I do believe they are on Instagram as well. I hope so. If this is Instagram over here, all right. So, um, with all that said, let's do this. Is something I do every day. I open this up, and it's celebrate recovery, which is a uh, loosely based off AA program. But this is a daily devotional, which I like because it's a bunch of devotionals written by different people who didn't necessarily want to take credit for it. So um, that's all I can say. All right. So I'm back to this is day 107. I literally just open up to whatever. It's not 
marked. If you see the page that's marked is the last one I did. And if I flip it over, that's a different one called excuses. All right. So tonight's is day 107, a call for accountability. And this is based on Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. There are 365 days in the course of a year, which we go through good times and bad times. There may be crises, crises, big and small, and days when we just feel stressed out or blue. That's what's essential for each of us to form an accountability team. We all need other people to hold us up when we're hurting people who will love us through the hard times. That, that's so important. That, that's so important is accountability uh, and even making yourself accountable to yourself is very, 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 very important. All right. So these are just other followers of Christ who agree to spend time with us. It doesn't have to be followers of Christ. It has to be uh, people who genuinely love you. If they genuinely, if they genuinely love you, um, trust me, they're with Christ no matter what, because you're in the room. Um, so there are people who will be there for us all and call us on our junk when we need a voice of reason. Those on our accountability team should be the same gender. We can exchange contact information with these important people so we can text or talk on the phone or meet for coffee. When the chips are down, these are important relationships designed to keep us safe and tightly bonded with God and his people. Satan would like nothing more than to isolate us and begin to mess with our heads. It's important to have someone call, someone who can deliver a word of encouragement, pray with us, and most of all, remind us that they, that we are not alone, that there is power in numbers. It's absolutely, uh, listen, your accountability uh, coach can be what they call a sober coach here in Kentucky. And I think they use that in North Carolina too. Um, I know uh, some people who are really, uh, really just straight up good people and um, uh, who do that and who are licensed to do it. Um, so it, it doesn't have to be somebody from a group meeting and you don't have to meet in large groups for accountability. Um, that's just so important because it's it's so it's become so archaic, but yet so push that, you know, if you're not doing AA, you're going to fail. The only way you fail is to really fail yourself. And, um, you know, I, I'm not that hardcore about it. If you called me tomorrow and been like, hey, you know, man, I was drinking, I'd be like, well, what do you want to do about it? Um, that's just how it is. I mean, when you get chastised or. Yeah, it, it just depends on where you're at. Honestly, the rooms depend on if it's a, a controlled room or if it's a all out. Everybody in there is a freaking therapist like um, social media is now where you've got a bunch of untrained and irresponsible people giving advice on um, what to do so that they can get clicks and put their names on a T-shirt. and Yeah. That's it. All right. So with me, I have people who do pray with me. I have people who do just sit there and talk. And some people you just want to talk and goof around with. I've got some people that I've been friends with for 35 years who um, I can get on the Xbox or 
them on a PlayStation and, um, you know, play a game with. I mean, it doesn't have to be like um, everybody thinks that all video games are Call of Duty. Um, I mean, there's Trivial Pursuit, there's Monopoly, there's Uno, there's all this stuff on there to do. And, um, you know, to me, Xbox is a viable therapy for especially controlling something like cravings. I honestly, um, on Jesus' name, man, I don't have cravings and I don't have triggers. And I'll get into that next week on uh, how, what, when, where, and why. And we'll go from there. But um, I'll leave y'all with a prayer for tonight because I'm getting ready to get out of it. Yeah. And I didn't realize I was going to be this long in the first place. So let's jam this out. Heavenly Father, show me the people I should approach about becoming members of my accountability team. I look forward to growing strong in the midst of those important relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. And seriously, that is, once again, I don't know how these are always fitting into what I'm talking about, but they are. And I can't stress enough about accountability because I know of a lot of people who come out of a recovery center and it doesn't matter how much time they spend in there. They're not, um, uh, they're just doing it to walk the steps. And um, again, if you, if you really, you know, if you need to get in a position um, that you need medical treatment, which is very valid. I mean, alcohol is completely uh, deadly to come off of. Um, Xanax as well. Um, you know, I know a lot of people like the MAT program. I don't know how I feel about it with the Suboxone. Um, I, I love it if it's done properly, but uh, properly and ethically, it should be about a six to eight month program um, and wean you off of it. And then guess what? You're free of all of it. Um, so again, I know people who've been on it for 12 and 13 years now, though, and my brother was on it for 20 years. So, um, you know, again, I, I'm going to strongly say that I don't know enough about it, but I do know enough to know that the treatment is very much more effective than long-term use because long-term use, if you're still using it and guess what, you're on out and you've got some doctor who you can't get a script from for some reason because you can't make it in for a drug test on time and you immediately start detoxing. There's a curse to that right there. And I'm sure I'm speaking to the choir when I say that, but that's it for me tonight. And um, thank you all who joined me and um, much love. If anybody needs me, reach out and um, I'll do my best and I'll see you all next week. And